Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. We've had our share of worldly individuals on the Media People Podcast, but very few have crisscrossed the globe like today's guest, Amina Mattern, born in Pakistan. Amina's personal, academic, and professional journey has taken her to places such as Dubai, Houston, Kuala Lumpur, Vancouver, and Montreal, just to name a few. Amina is currently based in Toronto, where she works as the financial services lead for LinkedIn Marketing Solutions. But marketing wasn't part of the original plan. Amina originally wanted to be a journalist, obtaining a graduate degree in journalism from Montreal's Concordia University. Like many budding journalists, she found herself working in public relations after graduation. This was at a time when brands were beginning to experiment with social media. As advertiser interest in social media increased, so did the opportunities for experienced professionals. This served as the perfect springboard for Amina's career. She was able to parlay her experience into leadership roles with major media firms such as Mediacom, Omnicom Media Group, Loblaw Media, and Arcane. Jen is, um, you know, the world's largest professional social media network. Um, and as my role as head of financial services there, I help, you know, all of the Canadian big banks um, around how to use LinkedIn, how to leverage our advertising, and I think most importantly, how to use us. Amina, I'm really looking forward to this chat. I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? So I'm originally uh, from Pakistan. Uh, I was born there. I've never actually lived there. Um, I've lived in probably, you know, 12, 13, 14. I sometimes forget how many, but uh, cities worldwide uh, from, you know, Jakarta, Kuala Lumpur, Houston, New York, London, Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. Where I'm from is always a bit of a tough question, but I was born in Pakistan. Why did you guys move around a lot? Did one of your parents have a job that entailed moving around? My uh, parents were in the uh, oil and gas sector, so we moved around to, you know, a bunch of cities globally. Uh, but I think the common thread there was all of the cities were sort of uh, big on, on oil and gas. So um, I got the opportunity to live in some really terrific cities uh, growing up. I got to ask you, do you have a favorite city? You don't have Oof. to say Toronto. Don't cop out and say Toronto, okay? Like, please. No, I'm, I, I'm not. I don't think I'm going to say Toronto, but it's a tough question to answer, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think it's because um, each city is is quite reflective, I would say, of the time and the place in my life growing up. So, just as an example, New York. I was quite young. I didn't truly get to appreciate it for what it was. Uh, so it's a bit difficult, whereas like Kuala Lumpur, I went to high school there and, you know, I had a great time there, but maybe that's just because I was in high school. I don't know. But if I had to pick, I'd probably say Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Malaysia. So you said, did you do your entire high school career in Malaysia, in Kuala Lumpur? I did. Yeah, I moved there in the in the second half of ninth grade. So I was always like that one student that came in like halfway through the school year. Um, but yeah, I spent half of ninth grade and then all, all of the rest of high school there. So what were your hobbies like growing up? Because I got to imagine that they were, I mean, they, they varied quite a bit from where you were living at the time. Like I'm sure there were things that were consistent from place to place, but you're exposed to new experiences. So that's obviously going to shape your interest as you go along. 
there's been a few things I would say that are, you know, the common threads. So, you know, I've always been good at writing. Uh, my ambitions were to either become a print journalist or a published author. Um, and then I think also by nature of the fact that I moved around so much, it just meant that I had to put in that extra effort into making relationships, friendships, investing in people. So I think that's also been a common thread in my life is just being a, a being accustomed to change, but B also just getting to know a lot of very different types of people and making an effort to get to know them and befriending them and sort of investing and enriching those relationships. Um, and then I think also growing up, um, I was surrounded by a lot of really talented, for whatever reason, I was surrounded by a lot of very talented poker players. So I got into poker. I've actually won a Vegas poker tournament at the Monte Carlo. I want to get into uh, that a little cool. bit. I want to get, okay, <laughs> let's talk about both of those. Cause you talked about yeah. being a very social person because you, as you moved around, you had to get to know people or you kind of hit the reboot button on your relationships. Does that make you then very good at reading people? Cause if you're a good poker player, an accomplished poker player, you've got to be able to read the table. I don't know if I would agree with that. I think poker is more about like the consistency and how you play. So like, I'll give you an example. And her name actually escapes me now, but one of the best female poker players in the world, she actually never has to ever look at any other player. She just has to see, she just has to understand what they bet and how they're playing. So it's not, I think it's a common myth that you have to be able to read people and this and that, but I think it's more about, being able to read the consistency and how other people play and then counteract that. How were you first exposed to poker? Uh, my brother has been very good at it. My friends were, you know, decent at it. My husband, who's also in our industry, is very good at it. I actually, I think I've, if I had to attribute it to one person, I would attribute it to my husband because he taught me like the the math behind it. And And when I say consistency in playing, what I'm really referring to is like the math and how people bet. Uh, and that I really truly learned from him. Is it a lot like the movie Molly's Game? Because that's that's all I know about poker was watching that movie. And I've watched it a number of times. <laughs> that is a very good movie. I've actually only seen it once. But yeah, I mean, I think that there is like some common sort of myths, but then there's some reality to it too, for sure. So how did you find yourself in that tournament? Was it at the Monte Carlo in, in Vegas? And talk a little, talk us through it. Like when it started off at the beginning, I'm sure there were many, many people across multiple tables. And was it kind of like what you see in the movies is that as people have to, I don't know in poker, I guess they lose and they have to forfeit or fold. It starts going from something like 20 or 30 tables down to like 10 tables. And then everyone's just crowded around that one table with all of the, uh, the finalists. That's literally exactly how it is. So it starts off with, I forget now how many, this was probably maybe, it was before I had my son, obviously, but so this was probably five, four or five years ago. But um, yeah, it's exactly like that. You start off with, you know, 30 tables, it dwindles, it dwindles, people get kicked off and people start crowding around like the few end tables. And then by the end, it's like everybody's just crowded, crowded around you, uh, which puts a little bit of extra added pressure, I would say. But um yeah, it's a lot of fun. Do you have to work extra hard at maintaining that poker face? Because I, I used to play poker with my friends, not very well, uh, in the latter part of my high school years. And I was usually the one losing. And you know how it is. Every once in a while, luck throws you the best hand. 
And it was very hard for me to contain my facial expressions when I could see that, you know what, I had four of a kind and there was just, I knew I was going to take it. Same thing with yourself. Like, did you find that you had to train yourself as well, just to kind of not get a little overtly excited and show your hand without actually showing your hand? I think so. I think there's like a, a certain level of like regulate emotional regulation that you have to exercise. But again, I think it's more about like the consistency of how you play. If you know you have the winning hand, you shouldn't play that any different. You know what I mean? Like you, you play the other player. You don't play your hand. Did you have any influences growing up? Anyone you looked up to? I've always looked up to uh, a lot of people in like the business and technology community. Uh, So Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft. Uh, And these are obviously these influences are in no particular order, but I think he's played a very large role in shaping how I view uh, the culture of an organization, especially an organization in an enterprise as large as Microsoft. Um, My other influence, I would have to say, is Jack Kerouac. So he's an author. He wrote On the Road. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners may know that book. And then I would say the other one is Scott Galloway. I mean, I love that guy. Yeah, yeah, he's incredible. I recently took a course with him. Uh, He's just very articulate. He's his it's everything he says is well researched. It's backed by statistics and knowledge. And uh, yeah, and he's phenomenal. And then I think the last one would have to be, you know, family like my my mother, especially. Tell us about your very first job. So it was, uh, I actually worked as a assistant in a daycare. So, you know, it entailed things like whatever, like prepping meals for the kids, cleaning up, helping the teacher set up all sorts of activities. And, you know, I think it's quite funny because anybody who knows me now would describe that as literally my, just my biggest nightmare being surrounded by like 30, 35 kids. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I enjoyed it. I think when you're younger, you have a little bit more like aptitude for, for things like that. But, um, yeah, it was good. I mean, it taught me quite a bit. You did your undergraduate work at the University of British Columbia and you studied psychology. Were you already living in Canada at the time? Were you actually living in Vancouver and decided to go there? Or was that, would you say that was the first move you made independently? No, yeah, that was the first move I made uh, independently. So, you know, my parents have always been quite like staunch advocates of uh, education, not just higher education, but education in general, because, you know, I mean, obviously the vast majority of the population of Pakistan is not educated, um, but it makes obviously all the difference. So they were very invested in like education and sending me and wherever I wanted to go, right? And I've always been very quite highly academic. I've gotten good grades. You know, I had the choice to go to whatever, Stanford, Harvard. Uh, But I picked UBC and I picked it because, A, I wanted to go to university in Canada as opposed to the U.S. This was, you know, around the time of the George Bush uh, Jr. So that was a driving factor, I would say. And then the second one was also, uh, it's just a, it was a beautiful city, right? It's surrounded by beaches, mountains, outdoors, Whistler, Blackcomb, uh, if you're into snowboarding, uh, and psychology. I mean, I went there for the, for the psychology program. Um, you know, I've always been very interested in people and how they think and why they think. And 
just the different impact of different cultures on the way that you think. So, and all, all those factors, I think, contributed to my end decision to go to UBC. You could argue that psychology and poker go hand in hand, or at least successful poker playing go hand in hand. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's just like interesting to know or to be able to anticipate what the other person will think or do. I think that's like an integral part of, of psychology for sure. And then after graduating from there, you entertain that passion that you spoke about early on about wanting to be a journalist. And you went the other way across the country to Concordia to do your graduate work in journalism. So why Concordia? And then you know, why study journalism apart from it being a passion? Was that going to be a career move for you? Because that is a bit of a pivot away from doing undergraduate work in psychology and then going and doing graduate work in journalism. I think it was a bit of both. Uh, you know, I've always had a love like in a very intrinsic love for writing. Uh, and my ambition, again, uh, was to become like a print journalist or a published author. Um, but also journalism, like I think it's such an important, important field. I mean, I could talk about this for hours, but, um, you know, it's I think it's under a lot of scrutiny today for a lot of different reasons. But, um, you know, it's it's a foundational pillar of like a functioning democratic society is to be able to tell tell the news and be able to iterate you know reiterate what is happening in the world from like a very I would say like non-biased perspective um and and journalism in general is you know again under a lot of scrutiny um and I wanted I that my passion for the field obviously still remains but uh I I was studied print journalism so I basically graduated and they said, here's your degree, like, congratulations. And, you know, like, well, what the fuck are you going to do with this degree? Like, <laughs> journalism's dying, congratulations, but like, here you go. Print, print journalism at the time was dying. You know what, journalism isn't dead, but it's, I hear what you're saying about print journalism, because everyone wants to see their kind of name and lights like that or have the story published in that manner because it's tangible. But in a way, it's kind of weird because anyone can call themselves a journalist now. I remember I had one TA when I was at Brock University and she had just finished the journalism program at Carleton University. And we're going back to, I think it was around 2003, 2004. And that was one thing that angered her was that if you wanted to be a journalist, you had to go to school for it. Or even if you didn't go to school for it, you had to get published some way or you, you did something scrappy and you chased some stories. And now it seemed like anyone with a website was calling themselves a journalist. So in a weird way, it's kind of been diluted a little bit. But I'd say as it's been diluted, it's kind of like what you said, you mentioned earlier. It's put the spotlight back on premium journalism and smart journalism even more. And it's kind of shown how important it is and how we have to get the pendulum to swing back that way. And you, you see a lot of great journalists kind of turning their backs. Like one journalist I like very much, Barry Weiss. She up and left the New York Times. And now she's gone it on her own in Substack. And a lot of other journalists are doing that, too. I mean, look at Kara Swisher, you know, like I, I think that journalism is very, very important. And I think having that sort of outlook on what's happening in today's society is very important. You need to have that. It's again, it's a very functioning pillar of a healthy democratic society. So if you had pursued journalism fully after graduating from Concordia, what would have been your area of interest that you would have covered? I would have been a tech journalist for sure. Ah. I have so much passion. I have so much passion for you know our industry, technology, advertising, media. Uh, uh, so yeah, for sure, I would have been a, a tech journalist. Why did you pick Concordia University and why Montreal? I mean, it has one of the best journalism programs in the country, um, 
and Montreal was a city, you know, I'd never been to. Um, I knew how to speak French before I ever knew how to speak English. I somewhat lost it because I entered into English speaking schools and I sort of forgot it and I wanted to bring it back. So, yeah, I mean, Montreal just seemed like a terrific sort of option for all of those things. Had a wicked journalism program, great culture in the city, good food, I'd heard. And yeah, so I just packed up and I moved. You didn't move there just for the Montreal smoked meat, though. Although that is very good. I mean, we poutine smoked meat. Like, <laughs> it's just pretty decent, you know? Like, it seems like a decent rationale to move. It is good comfort food. When you relocated to Canada for school, were your parents then living in the United States? So my parents uh, were, they retired, they moved to Dubai. You know, my dad loves to golf. They like warm weather. So like there's no better (laughs) place. Um, So yeah, they've been retired there. They've been living there happily for the last whatever, you know, whenever 10, 15 years, however long it's been. So after graduating Concordia, Rather than going to journalism, you did what some journalists do, and you went into public relations. What brought you to One Milk, Two Sugars, and what did you do there as an account manager? You know, as I mentioned, the degree was in print journalism. Industry was dying. There were not a whole lot of jobs. Um, actually, I, I did get offered one job. It was uh, for Al Jazeera, uh, but the the way that they had positioned it was saying, hey, like, you know, you're female, like you're of whatever. They didn't voice it like this. I think they said something like, oh, you're brown and we're looking for brown females to be like anchors uh, for Al Jazeera. And I go, well, that's great. But A, like I'm a print journalist. I'm not like a broadcast journalist. Um, And B, like I'm I'm not just going to join your organization because you need more like diversity, right? So said no to that. Luckily, there was this thing, you know, called digital and it was booming and it was starting to grow and it was starting to to be a thing. And so my some of my journalism professors said, well, why don't you give this a go? You know, you're a good writer. So you're a print journalist. But why don't you apply that to to the digital sphere? And I said, OK, you know what, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So one milk, two sugars came around. They were a traditional PR firm at the time. So, you know, when I say traditional PR, like it was like magazine inserts, newspapers, whatever, getting an insert on breakfast television, et cetera. But they also realized that social media was like this new thing where you could genuinely engage with your audiences direct, right? So this is what they wanted to get into. They were looking for someone to help build out their social media practice. And so that's sort of how I... My foray, I would say, into digital uh, through the lens of like a traditional PR firm. Talk to me how that goes about then, because you're starting in social media when it's in its infancy. There aren't really paid media options on it. I I believe it was 100% earned media you were doing. There were very few platforms, I think really only Facebook or Twitter that people were focusing on. And it kind of seems like there weren't really any best practices to fall on. You were kind of, if I could use the term, building the airplane while you were flying mm-hmm. or in the air. Would, would that be a correct mm-hmm. way of putting it? Like you were just figuring it out as you went along? Yeah. I mean, there was no like books on the topic or like no, you know, whatever, ad age, digi day. Like there weren't like references that you could go to to be like, what's the best practice in doing this? I mean, there was none. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think, yeah. So it was Facebook, Twitter, 
and it was all organic. So this was before, obviously, the advertising model became sort of the dominant business model in the industry. Um, and they still sort of sold everyone on like building your page and building your organic followers. And like, this is the place that people are going to go to and they want to interact with your brand. Um, that was still like very much the narrative back then. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was just like figure it out as you go along. And then I would say like there was like very rudimentary data to like highlight, you know, which piece of content was getting the best engagement and whatever. I mean, today we know those are just proxy metrics, but back then it was like, oh, like this post got 100 likes and that one got like 20 likes. So we'll just go with you know the one that got 100 and it was a bit arbitrary, I would say. And that becomes your benchmark, I guess. It's like, we'll do more of that so we get more 100 likes or find a way to turn 100 into 200 and just, I guess, kick the 20, the 20 like post to the side and be like, well, that clearly didn't work in A-B testing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we know there's plenty of problems with that sort of a model, but yeah, that was how it was. And was this back at the time when kind of the ultimate goal on social media was to get as many followers as possible? Because I guess that was a metric for popularity. Absolutely. Each campaign's sort of main core focus was how do we generate followers for the brand's page? And like that was really, and we would sell that as like a proxy for how much clout that that brand had in the real world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was the narrative, at least back then, um, that we went with. And yeah, I think it was interesting. It was the first time that brands explored social media as like a very viable, very genuine way to connect with audiences. And so after we could say what, about six, seven years, two degrees and a job in Canada, you packed up and you you moved to Dubai. So what brought you to Switch? And tell us a little bit about what you were doing there as the senior digital account manager. So I actually moved to Dubai unemployed. So Montreal was great. You know, I ate the poutine I set out to eat. <laughs> like it was, it was, I got the degree I wanted to get, you know, and I, I got a really great job in social media. Like it was all wonderful, but like it's cold as shit there in the winter, you know, and I was just got a little bit fed up. So I said, okay, I'm packing my bags, moving to Dubai. Uh, I actually moved there unemployed. I, I didn't have a job. Uh, but I reached out to, you know, I did my research, I just determined like who, who are the best sort of companies there to work for, I reached out, got a job at Switch. Switch is a content marketing agency. So, um, you know, they worked with like the region's largest, like in the Middle East and North Africa, um, their largest government and hospitality clients. Um, and because it was a content marketing agency, and I want to say traditional content marketing, um, they would do stuff again, like sort of like the PR firm. They would do stuff like, you know, magazines, newspapers, like very traditional sort of avenues for amplification. But they were looking for someone to help digitize their offering. And so that's what my role as like the senior digital manager really was. It was like, okay, if we have these government and hospitality clients, how do we recreate some of their more traditional assets so whether that's like their annual report or that's their website or their social media presence how do we like truly digitize that and make them digital first um so it's very interesting i mean it's a very interesting part of the world in general but you know like i had a six star hotel as a client i think that's like the one and only time i'll ever have a six star client a hotel client but it was 
fantastic. Um, you know, I got to like go stay there, test out all the food, the massage, like all the amenities, and then just, you know, create their social media presence. I mean, it was a wicked job. Do six star hotels have poutine? I think they did, you know, but maybe they could make some fancy version of it there. Truffled fries or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure they'll spruce it up somehow. When you landed in Dubai, was there any sort of culture shock or are you kind of over that kind of feeling? Because again, like I've said, you've seen so much of the world and you've moved around quite a bit. I, th- I mean, I think there's always an element of culture shock. Um, maybe Dubai was slightly less because like it's culturally, yeah, it's a big expat community and whatever, but culturally, like there's a lot of similarities to like, let's say Pakistan, right? It's a collectivistic culture, et cetera. Um, but I think there's always just a bit of a shock. Like I tell people um, when I moved to Montreal and the culture shock there, you know, like I landed and the next day um, I wouldn't, I, I had no idea where to even go and get milk or bread or like where the nearest grocery store was or where the nearest bank was. And like, you just have to figure it out and you have to navigate your way around the city and get to know things and get to know people. Um, and Dubai was, I would say very much the same, but I think because Maybe it was a bit of a similar culture to Pakistan. And, you know, I had my parents there, which is obviously a very amazing sort of uh, fallback. Let's say if you don't know what's happening or you don't know what's going on, you can always sort of ask them. So I think that was helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always, always a culture shock, even if you've done it as many times as, as I have. Your next move was to Mediacom, still in Dubai. First off, did you find the role or did the role find you? I mean, I would say a bit of both. Um, I, you know, I'd always, so I'd done PR, I'd done content marketing. I was like a marketing person, but I, you know, I always wanted to get into the advertising or media side of things. Um, because, I mean, quite frankly, I wanted to work with big brands with big budgets. Like, I think when you have big budgets, you have great, greater decision making capabilities and, it's exciting. So that's what I wanted. Um, And I think my expertise in social media in general, since like the nascent stage of social media really helped me land the role. Um, So I was like head of head of digital for their largest client, which was GSK at the time. Um, But like social advertising was still very nascent, right? Like it wasn't a big, big thing. I think there was Facebook advertising, Twitter advertising, LinkedIn advertising, I think that's it. So yeah, there, you know, is GSK. I also led Sony PlayStation for, for a short amount of time, but it was cool because it was a regional role, right? It was, I was covering Middle East and North Africa and that's, I want to say confluence of like, I don't know how many countries, but there's got to be at least 12, 12, 15 countries in there. I I have to imagine. Yeah. I was going to say it's either like, yeah, I was going to say either 12, 13, 14, something like that. But it's like different countries, different languages, different audiences. It's a very, very diverse makeup of like an audience. And so like if you think about it in Canada, right, like we have to do advertising based on like English versus French. So, okay, but think about like 14, 15 different types of like sub segments. So that's what it was like. 
And not even um, that, you've also got to get to know the media brands as well, because like, let's say, for example, what's popular in Algeria is completely different from Egypt or Morocco or anything else or Dubai for that matter. So you really had to throw yourself into that. And looking back on it, I think is what's the most interesting part, because when you're in it, you're like, okay, this is just like normal having to meet with like 14 different vendors for like different sort of regional nuances and whatever their publisher portfolio entailed um but now I look back on it and I was like and and it's interesting because we really gave all of those different players in the advertising space a lot of freedom to operate because we had to like there was no way that you could just pitch Facebook and Google and call it a day because there's so many nuances in the Middle East and North Africa as a market that you just almost had to work with all of these different sort of publishers and I found it absolutely fascinating. So when you moved over to Mediacom, how much, or maybe you were even learning, no, no, because that's when you were doing the regional work was at Mediacom. So when you landed there, how much of your initial time there was spent just doing research and learning the different media brands? So when you had to RFP, you knew who exactly who to RFP, or you made sure you had to ensure you weren't leaving anyone out from the RFP process. I took a lot of time again. I think it goes back to my like just inherent like belief that you have to invest in relationships, right? So when all of these different publishers would come to me and ask for meetings and you know, I think sometimes the tendency is to say like no because obviously people are very busy and whatever, but like I always gave them the time of day and I think it really made a huge difference because they each had a very interesting proposition, you know, and like their own way of reaching these very nuanced audiences. Um, and so, yeah, it was a very interesting time for sure. So what brought you back to Canada and OMD Toronto? Because we know it's not the weather. We've already established that. <laughs> well, it was a little bit more of a unsexy explanation, I suppose. Uh, I got, so I finally received my Canadian permanent residency so when I was in Montreal I applied for it it was processing in the background when I lived in Dubai I got it and then I my husband and I had to make a decision so he's originally from the U.S. and we were thinking about moving to the U.S. for a while um but then I received the Canadian PR so we decided to move to Toronto well simultaneous to the PR I also received um, a job offer to lead advertising for McDonald's at OMD so both things sort of came together at a good time and then we decided to pack up Dubai and, and move to Toronto so he applied for his PR as a U.S. citizen and uh, here we are you know five years later. What did your role there at OMD entail as the digital director? So it, it was interesting. It was an interesting role because so I was unsure at that time if I wanted to stay agency side or branch out, or whatever. But I took it specifically for two reasons. One, it had a very specific remit. And that's like you don't often get that, right? When you're interviewing, it's like, okay, what's the job? They'll send you a job description and it's just like a bunch of shit. But this was very specific. Like they said, we need somebody who can prove the digital, like the efficacy of digital dollars that we're spending on McDonald's. Obviously they're QSR, traditional and, you know, heavy in traditional advertising, they always have been. Um, and, and they just, quite frankly, owner operators of McDonald's didn't see the value in digital, right? They said, well, how can you prove 
that me taking money away from TV or radio or out of home that's traditionally, you know, so well for us. Uh, how can you prove that um, digital is going to render the same sort of effect? So it was a very specific remit. And I think that was what sort of perked my ears and got me excited. Oh, so you weren't even, it wasn't even really all about KPIs. Like you were defending our medium, like you were going to battle for us. Yeah, yeah, it was all like, if we put you in this role, you have like a year to prove it. And if you can't prove it, like you're canned, you're out of here. You're so canned and all that money goes back first. to radio and TV. Yeah, yeah. No, so I think that was the first. And then the second, um, I mean, we don't often talk a, a lot about like this, but, you know, is like my manager and the culture of the team. And she was a phenomenal woman. And she, the minute I talked to her, I was like, I'm going to learn a lot from this woman. And uh, that was probably the second reason that I took the role. You were promoted to strategy director. First off, how does being strategy director differ from being digital director? Because I assume being digital director, there was some form of strategy around that as well. I think it was a little bit different. So digital director at OMD with McDonald's was all about like, again, the remit was like prove the efficacy of digital dollars. So um, it was all about like building deep relationships with all of my ad tech peers, Google, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter. Um, and we were actually the first to test like to beta test like store visit attribution in Canada. So that's a like one of a very direct way to prove the efficacy of digital dollars for QSR. Um, but uh, it was also like an integrated planning strategy and marketing science. And I think that was the first time that I really got a strong understanding of like data, data science and measurement which I think has continued since then. Um, but the strategy director role was different. So Rogers went up for pitch. We had to pitch for it. We won it. We set up Red Magnet. You know, it was an amazing, I would say, experience in like operationalizing an agency. Um, but it was, you know, operations is not, had, had very little experience, let's say, in like true operations. Um, so it was a little, little bit crazy and a bit of a shit show, uh, but it was, uh, I think, an interesting experience nonetheless, because it taught me um, more on like the opera, like so strategy, but then you have to be able to operationalize it. So I think that's what it taught me is the, the back end of that. You've been touching on it throughout our conversation, but kind of sum it up for us. How is it different working in media in Dubai versus Canada? Media back then in Dubai was a very fun industry you know like and and again I think like partners had to make an extra effort I think to like get in front of your face take you out get to know you make you learn their you know proposition and their products but it, it was just very fun like I think everybody had a lot of fun doing it um whereas in Canada I think it's just a bit more and maybe that's just a byproduct of where we are today right we've been through a pandemic events have stopped uh advertising i think has become like a little bit at least this is what i discussed with some of the more junior folks is that, you know to get into advertising because it's a fun industry and i just don't think that necessarily that like the fun is still there um we're trying to bring it back which i think is nice but um at the end of the day i think it is about networking, getting to know people, having fun, 
uh, and making an impact on the industry, you know, and I think you can only do that once you truly know and get to understand what the different offerings are. So was there a bit of culture shock coming back to Canada? Like, I'm not talking like personally, but professionally, though, because at this point, the bulk of your media career and a lot of the heavy lifting and learning you had done was in Dubai. So when you come to Canada, do you find that there's some sort of professional adjustment you've got to make? Did you find yourself sometimes in in meetings going, well, this is how we did it in Dubai. Maybe it will work here and drawing on those practices. Yeah, yeah, all the time. It was quite tough. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I think like my personality is quite adaptable. And again, like that, my boss at OMD, uh, give her a shout out, Jamie Ogle. She's a phenomenal woman. I mean, she, she knew, right? She knew. She's like, she, this, she hasn't lived in Toronto. She doesn't have the network yet, but she gave me a lot of uh, leeway, I would say, to establish those relationships, do it my way, propose new things, you know, take learnings from other markets and potentially apply it to the Canadian market. And like, not a lot of managers are like that, right? They don't have a lot of appetite to try it new stuff especially when you have like owner operators of mcdonald's you know barking down your back but she really did but yeah i mean it it was a professional adjustment and it it took a lot of again it took a lot of investing in relationships i had to lean very heavily on partners you know ad tech partners whatever company they may be from but i had to really heavily rely on them to be like hey like what's going on in this market you know like send me stuff, like educate me, teach me things. Uh, and I developed a ton of really, really good, solid relationships even today that I that I leverage. So what brought you to Loblaw Media? Because I think that move is interesting because you were in what people are trying to call now retail media, even though it's not retail media in the traditional sense. It's literally retailers becoming media brands and leveraging the audiences they get on their websites and their data points and so forth. So what was that move like? Loblaw Media was very interesting. I can talk about this specific part of my career for days. But um, so the premise behind Loblaw Media was, hey, we're sitting on 19 million Canadians and their first party shopping data, right? And that shopping data resides in the PC Optimum program. So if you're a PC Optimum member, if it's a loyalty program, um, you know, we know like Victor buys this brand of pet food at this cadence every week. So we can target him with whatever, either that brand or competitor brand. But not only that, so it solves for the targeting problem of marketing um, based on that rich first party data set. But it also solves for the measurement issue that we have in marketing and advertising in the sense that, hey, I targeted Victor with this campaign. Did he then go into store, swipe his PC Optimum card and buy that whatever whatever product we had included in the campaign, right? And that's, had it had never been done in, in Canada before, right? Today we know, know it as incrementality or sales lift measurement, but it, it had never been done in Canada before we brought that to the Canadian market and we were only able to do so because um, we had this access, this very rich first party data set. Were you kind of like a kid in a candy store for your profession? Because it seems like at this point you had access to more data and information than you've ever had at any other 
any other role. So it seems like you were able to execute in ways you couldn't before. Still to this day, you know, I think the only second comparable would be LinkedIn, with 18 million Canadians, first party, whatever, but shopping, shopping data and, you know, behavioral, it's, it, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, there was obvious compliance um, loopholes we had to jump through and whatever, right? Because like privacy is still paramount. We didn't want to like, you know, whatever. So we had to take that into serious consideration, I would say. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you can't do that, right? With, with, with anything else, not Google, not Facebook. Uh, it was single-handedly the best data source for targeting and measurement that exists even today, I would say, when it comes to like the retail CPG space, maybe less so for like non-endemics, but retail and CPG, um, I mean, certainly. But the agency world came calling again, and you found yourself back as the VP of strategy at Arcane. So what made you move back into the agency, into agency life? So Loblaw was interesting in the sense that there was an external side of the business, aka like convincing CPG advertisers to use us for better targeting and measurement. But there was also like an internal thing going on where I was rallying like Loblaw Digital and Loblaw Media and PC Optimum for loyalty, but the internal shopper marketing team in enterprise for like the shopper marketing proposition. So there was like a lot of internal stuff going on too and it just like it got to be a, a bit much because again like Loblaw Media back then was nascent it was year one year two uh so you know I'm quite proud that I helped to like solidify it set it up um but I got an opportunity to go back agency side and you know for me what was interesting about Arcane was that they had this huge roster of um, D to C brands. So they primarily operate in like the D to C space, e-commerce space. It coincided with the pandemic, which obviously like explosion of e-commerce, more D to C brands, et cetera. But the problem that I saw was like these D to C brands are great. They've secured whatever first round, second round of financing, but like they knew fuck all about marketing or like how to actually <laughs> grow their brand. And so like that was the missing piece, right? It's like they wanted to tap into the knowledge of someone who had worked for big brands and that like a new marketing strategy and like how to actually grow brands from a strategic lens. Um, and so that's what it was. It was like, how do you apply this knowledge that you've given to big brands to grow? But how do you apply that to like smaller D2C brands and that growth trajectory? So you started at Arcane before the pandemic started. So you were there as everything started and we went into this shutdown, correct? Yeah. How did you have to reboot your, not just your work ethic, but like your leadership style? Because you're a VP there and no longer are you in meetings and boardrooms having face-to-face -face conversations with your team. Was that a bit of an adjustment? Did you kind of have to rediscover your management style or was it just kind of business as usual for you? Like, I think I've always been decent at managing people only because like, I have lived in so many different countries and interacted with so many different types of people that for me, leadership is not a cookie cutter thing, right? You have to understand the your team. You have to understand like the individual. You have to understand what motivates them. 
have to understand what drives them, what doesn't drive them, you know, all of those things. So I think it has to be a very tailored approach. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, sitting everything as we know, the pandemic is now a Zoom call. Even if you want to just have like a five minute conversation it needs to be like the scheduled 30 minute Zoom call. Um, but I think just like with anything else, if you give it time, you get to know people uh, and you adjust your leadership style to suit them. I think that's what makes the difference, whether it's virtual or in person or, or whatever. But I think you have to have the flexibility to do that. What about Zoom presentations? Because on my side, I'm sales side, so my life is nothing but presentations. I was always horrible at video presentations. And I found that I had to hit the reset button on my presentation style if I wanted to be engaging again, because I used to thrive delivering in-person presentations. Did you find that you had to do that as well? Because it's not just like we're having calls with people. We're actually leading and trying to still be engaging through a little 13, 14, or 15-inch computer screen. Actually, just today, I'd spoken to one of my financial services clients uh, and and my manager was actually in the room and she told me afterwards, you know, she was like, it's, it's funny because pre-pandemic, people had, you know, a, let's say like a, their attention span in a meeting was seven minutes ongoingly, seven minutes. And now with Zoom and all of the fatigue that we see, it's down to like two and a half or three. Which means, what that means is that obviously, A, attention spans are limited. B, there's tactics that we have to intentionally use to get people back into the conversation, right? So whether it's like, hey, so-and-so, you know, Jane, you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that this was of interest to you or that this was the objective that you were trying to achieve. Well, here's a slide that speaks directly to that. Or, hey, so-and-so, you know, you mentioned this. Well, here's a stat that proves just that. So it's like bringing them in and using their names in the Zoom presentation to bring them back in, I think, is a very effective uh, tactic. That's a good point. I mean, you're not really putting them on the spot, but you're trying to be a little bit more interpersonal. Yeah, totally. And just bringing them back into the conversation and bringing it sort of, you know, full circle. So speaking of full circle, nice segue. That brings us full circle in our chat to LinkedIn. Did you find the role or did the role find you? And what attracted you to coming over vendor side? No, I mean, I think the role found, this is the one time I'll say like the role really found me. So yeah, yeah I've been wanting to move tech side for quite some time, but uh, you know, anyone who knows me reasonably well will tell you I have big qualms with a lot of social media companies today. Um, so, you know, Facebook has tried to recruit me in the past. I've said no. They said why. I said, yeah, I just, I find you ethically quite deplorable, so I can't work for you. <laughs> well, you um, said that to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I do, right? I've written, yeah, I mean, I can go on for a long time, but it's it's just not a company that I align with or that I I'm not you know the values I just I don't align with a lot of what they say or do so I have a very tough time I you know I have had a very tough time sort of finding a company uh, that I align with but I think LinkedIn is, is just that right it's like I'm all about providing economic opportunity for everybody and anybody global workforce that's obviously what the platform does privacy is at the forefront people go on there to like be inspired and learn and 
build their professional networks. Like they're not on there to troll and bully people and, you know, post shit that's just going to be whatever. It's just not that type of a platform. So yeah, I mean, I think it really did find me in the sense that like our values are intertwined and then obviously like they're a part of Microsoft and I, you know, really admire Satya and Adela. And so, yeah, I mean, the whole thing was just, it worked out very well, I'll say. And you're spreading some of that inspiration around because, correct me if I'm wrong, you also teach at BrainStation. I do. Yeah, yeah. I'm a teacher. I mean, I think it's very exciting to teach the next generation of of marketers. You know, I think a lot of what we do, whether you're tech side or agency side or client side, is like you have to have fundamental understanding of marketing and strategy and growth, right? Like it doesn't matter what platform you work for what you do like there's certain tenets that drive growth and there's certain tenets that don't drive growth and i think marketers need to have a very fundamental understanding of that and what are you teaching if someone listening to this wants to take your class teach digital marketing so digital marketing and i've also taught analytics in the past not my fave but uh digital marketing i do love and it looks like we are going to see your name in print after all next year because you're publishing your first book Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I am. I co-authored it with um, an old colleague of mine. Uh, So the book is called Crossing the Line. It could be published, I hope, Q1, Q2 of next year. We're deciding which publisher to go with right now. Um, But it's just a book about, you know, the growth of big tech and how the industry evolved. Uh, A lot of it has to do with, you know, Facebook and a lot of the sort of, uh, I would say, secondary effects of the platform. So if it comes to like fake news, polarization, teen depression, there's there's a lot of them. Um, but it, it sort of tackles those issues in a very sort of comprehensible way, I would say. Amina, this has been fantastic. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Man, yeah, let's do it. Don't worry, this is painless the campaign you are most proud of i'm gonna go with sick kids versus so i helped formulate the campaign in year one and also year two and it's just a very exciting campaign to to be a part of and obviously hugely successful your favorite movie i like anything with a bit of a plot twist so inception interstellar uh, i'm also a huge fan of like the dark knight um sounds like you're a chris yeah, nolan fan i am i love but, chris nolan although i will say tenet was not my fave i'm still trying to figure it out and interstellar wikipedia sort of helped me with it but i pushed that off to the <laughs> side and let me close this one close with this inception the final scene is he in reality leonardo dicaprio or is he still in a dream what do you I think come know. on i don't know i can't i can't I don't know. I can't tell you. I mean, I think that's the beauty of it, right? Your favorite video game? Um, so growing up, I played a lot of Halo on Xbox. I haven't played it in a very long time, but if I had to pick one, I'd pick Halo. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I've always been a huge fan of Sienna Miller, um, so I'd pick her if she was brown, because I'm brown. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would you call it? 
been thinking about this one. I don't know. I don't know how to answer this one. I wish I had something witty, but I don't. Okay. Um, All right. Your favorite book. I have a ton of favorite books, but if I had to pick, I would pick Great Gatsby. I'd pick Algebra of Happiness by Scott Galloway. I'd pick The North Water, which is actually very rare for me because I don't read a whole lot of uh, fiction, but that's one that's really good. And uh, The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu for anyone in the industry looking for a good book. Your favorite song? Uh, well, I like any sort of like 60s classic rock. Uh, so like anything by Bob Dylan, um, CCW, anything like that. The best advice you have ever received? Mm, the best advice I ever received was just to invest in relationships. You know, I think that's been a really common thread in my life and it's gotten me to where I am today. So yeah, I just invest in the people that you're surrounded with and actually there is a piece of research just study just just released that illustrates like the one main correlate so everyone always says well how, how do you lead a happy life and the one strongest piece of correlation to living a happy life is can you guess where it is relationships yeah it's like how many people like at, when you're on your deathbed literally it's like how many people do you have around you family friends that you could call that you, that you would say you've developed good relationships with. And I think that's really telling. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I mean, I just say to like, just take it easy, you know, like learn. I only learned to meditate much later in life or to whatever, practice mindfulness or whatever you call it. But I think if I could tell, tell a younger self to do anything, I would say learn to meditate from a very early age just to like quiet the noise and live in the present and just focus on the moment. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Um, well, I would either be an author or I would be a tech journalist because I truly, truly believe that we work in the most interesting industry in the world. And there's a lot going on in the industry. We're at a crossroads. Um, and I think it's just a fascinating industry to be a part of. Amina, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova. <laughs>